So now we're going to spend some time studying the Bible. We do this every week. This is uh, central to what we do at Grace Bible Church. We gather and form ourselves around Christ. And so every week we're going to study the Bible because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. So if you have a Bible, open that up. If you don't have a Bible, there are extra hardback Bibles under the chairs. You can keep that if you don't have one at home. We'd love for you to have your own Bible. Uh, A lot of you might have a Bible app on your phone. You could flip into that Bible app and turn to Philippians. We've been studying the book of Philippians, and we've called the series in Philippians, Risk Everything. We're trying to encourage you to invest in the gospel, to partner with Jesus as he is changing the world generation after generation. So invest in Jesus with us, risk everything, the letter to Philippians. This week, we're starting chapter two. We've been just kind of working through it verse by verse. We're in chapter two this week, and we're calling it single-minded. As I've been telling you, we are called to single-mindedly pursue Jesus, not necessarily pursue prosperity, not necessarily pursue poverty, but pursue Jesus. And he's going to take us through good times and bad, but it's going to be worth it. Pursue Jesus single-mindedly. Before we look at the text, I want to give you an illustration of what it means to be single-minded. I I talk a lot about sports because that was probably what I spent more hours as a kid doing than anything else. But I have to always clarify, I was never really good at sports. I just did a lot of sports, okay? Now, there's this cool thing that started to take place when my child was young. I started to recognize that he was actually going to be better at sports than me. And of course, that's wonderful because then a father can live vicariously through his son. The moment first happened when he was about four or five years old and we had this little four to five-year-old soccer team that I was coaching. That was when I had this crystal clear moment that, that he had that it factor. It was his single-minded focus on the goal. Now, with four and five-year-olds, one of the biggest issues you have is to try to get them to stop pulling dandelions and to go the right direction, right? Like basics, there's this third thing that I tried to teach them, and that was to keep your shoes tied, okay? And so we were in this one particular soccer game. They're all running around. It's chaos. They're trying to fight over the ball. I keep telling them, no, go that direction, right? And I notice my son's shoes are not tied. And I'm like, oh, no, his shoes are not tied. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, a lot of times four-year-olds, their shoes come off, and they start crying. There's a whole meltdown, and the whole thing falls apart. Well, there's this like scrum, this, this crowd of kids, and they're all fighting over the ball and kicking, and I notice the shoes are untied, and I see another kid step on his shoelaces. But my son is single-mindedly focused on the goal. He dribbles out of the scrum of players with the ball, and he steps right out of his shoe. And he leaves one shoe behind, and he's like hobbling with the ball down the field, one shoe on, one shoe off, and he scores a goal. I'm like, this kid's got it. He is single-mindedly focused on the goal. He, he knew the difference between primary things and secondary things, right? I'd taught them don't pick dandelions. I'd taught them to go the right direction. I'd taught them to keep their shoes tied, but he knew if he had to choose between scoring a goal and tying his shoes, he was going to go for the goal, right? And we see the same thing in the spiritual life. There are many distractions, Right? Do you need to take care of many things in life? Yes. But we are called to single-mindedly focus on Jesus. Pursue him no matter what happens. And that's what we see in this text. Now, before we read the text, I want to tell you one more thing. We pursue Jesus because he had a single-minded pursuit of us. It's my spoiler alert. This is kind of the summary of the whole thing. 
Jesus pursued you while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what separates Christianity from every other religion. Other religions will say, if you pursue God enough, he'll pay you back. Christianity says, we didn't deserve to be pursued, but God loved us anyway. He pursued us. Jesus died for us. Jesus rose from the dead. He came after you in love. Now pursue him. Now love him because he loved you first. So let's look at the text. We're going to start with verses 1 through 5. It's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I don't know if you heard it, but the word mind was repeated three times, and then there were many other ways of repeating this unity, this sameness, this single-mindedness. Paul is saying, be single-mindedly focused on Christ. Pursue him. Be one with each other, church, brothers and sisters, because Jesus was one with you first. I'm going to pray that he would teach us. Uh, We all have a lot of distractions. I know we came in here uh, with other worries, Uh, a lot of things going on in the world, a lot of things that are weighing us down our health, our money, the economy, the world, family relationships. There's, there's a lot going on. I'm just going to pray that the Spirit would help us to, to really hear Him, to listen to Him as we look at the Word. Let me pray. God, thank You that You speak to us. We thank You that You have come for us in Jesus and that You give us Your Word, and we pray that we would hear You, uh, that our hearts and our minds would be open to You, and that You would lead us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is to be single-minded, to single-mindedly focus on Jesus. And we're going to see this flesh itself out in three ways. There are going to be three ways that we live out a single-minded pursuit of Jesus in this text. Number one, that's that we would unite in service. Unite in service. Uh, The second one is that we would fixate on Jesus. We are the people who fixate on Jesus. We obsess over Jesus. And Paul is going to point this to us in verses 5 through 11, which is really the central pivot point of the entire book of Philippians. Everything draws on the strength of who Jesus is in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And then finally, he's going to say, because of all that, then obey dramatically. Obey dramatically. So first point, we should unite in service. Second point, we should fixate on Jesus. Third point, we should obey dramatically. That's what single-minded pursuit of Jesus looks like. So the first point is that we should unite in service. We see that in those first few verses that I already read. There's a repetition of single, same, unite kind of words piled up on top of each other, and a repetition of mindedness, like our, our focus, our hearts. Um, sometimes we can kind of separate heart from mind, but a lot of times in Scripture, those are seen as the same thing, kind of just like the core of our motivations, right? Is your motivation, your heart, your mind, your soul focused on Jesus, single-mindedly on the same page with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. We're united together in that we love Jesus and love each other, and then we're united in recognizing what Jesus has done 
for us. So let's unite then in serving one another in humility, he'll say as well. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, this is an if-then statement, a logical sequence, if Christ has encouraged you, then do these things, right? But he piles up several of these ifs. If there is any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, if there's any comfort from his love, if there's any participation in the Spirit, if there's any affection and sympathy, then verse 2, now he gives the command, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. He's like, okay, then you guys be one with each other. Unite together. Have the same focus, the same mind, the same heart. Unite together. And he's going to say, and do that as you serve one another. So it's not just a mind and heart thing, right? A lot of times we think of unity as symbolic. Our culture is all about unity and diversity. And so a lot of times we have these symbolic pictures of unity amongst our diversity, which are great. Symbolism can be good. We'll talk about this more later as well. Symbolism can be good, but he's saying, now actually do something about it, right? Like actually serve each other. So he goes on in verse 3 and says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. In humility, right? Not thinking too highly of yourself. Count others more significant than yourself. Don't always be putting yourself ahead of others. Uh, One of the first things my kids learned when they started going to school that kind of shocked us and scared us was how to push other kids out of the way to get to their spot in the lunch table, right? Have you ever ever done that before? We kind of grow out of it as adults. You don't usually do that at Whataburger. Get out of the way! And you jump in the... But like these little five-year-olds were kind of like cramming by each other, pushing each other out of the way to get table. Well, we're not supposed to do that, okay? Don't consider others more highly than yourself. Consider... No, Do consider others more highly than yourself. Don't put yourself ahead of them, right? Don't push them out of the way, but but lift others up. He goes on in verse 4, gives a little more detail to this. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you struggle with a codependent personality, if you're the kind of person that finds your entire identity in sacrificing for others and being a martyr and then being bitter that people don't pay you back, he's saying, don't do that either. Okay, he's saying, look, not only to your own interests, but also to others, right? You're going to have to look after your own stuff. You're going to have to eat and drink and sleep and pay your bills. He's saying, also, care for others. That's always the Christian ethic. It's always like, continue to serve and sacrifice for others as well. Take care of your business. Go to work, do your normal things, and care for other people as well. Look out for others. I'll I'll read the verse one more time. Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So a couple of key words here. One is humility. I really want to encourage you if you struggle with humility and how to think about it, C.S. Lewis talks about it in his classic work, Mere Christianity. He's got some really good stuff about humility, basically a whole chapter on it that's really helpful Humility is neither thinking that you're this incredible, awesome person, right? That's one extreme. And we kind of know that humility is to not think too highly of yourself. That's pretty clear. But there's this other thing that we often fall into as Christians, which is thinking too lowly of yourself, right? It's like, oh, I'm so terrible, beating yourself up, you know, flogging yourself. I'm so awful. No, it's like, just stop thinking about yourself, right? That's really what true humility is, is like, yeah, I am a sinner. I have been awful, 
but Jesus has forgiven me. It's the balance of both of those things. I'm incredibly broken. I'm incredibly loved. And that gives you a fullness out of which to serve others and to stop thinking about yourself. You're not like clamoring to be like, am I okay? Am I not okay? I don't know. I don't know what to think. No, just settle it. Yeah, you're a sinner, but Jesus loves you. Now serve others. Be united in service. And then he uses this really cool word, conceit. So I want to nerd out a little bit and give you the Greek background for this word, because this Greek word is going to get echoed again later on in our passage. The Greek word here for conceit is kenadoxia. Kenadoxia, which means empty glory. Empty glory. It's going to be contrasted with Jesus. We glory in our emptiness as humans. That's conceit. Jesus was glorious and he emptied himself for us. And so he's the model we should follow. Paul's saying, don't have this empty glory. Don't glory in your emptiness. The King James Version is vain glory. It's a beautiful Old English word for that. You're saying, look at how awesome I am. I'm so great. And he's like, well, no, you're a puny human. Glory, glory in Christ, not in yourself, right? And that's conceit is puffing yourself up and thinking that you're so awesome. So when we take the next section and we compare it with the actions of Jesus, we're going to see a model for how we actually do service. So what I'm doing is I'm kind of taking this section a little bit out of order to help you learn the how do we actually look after the interests of others, right? The next section we're going to say, well, the way we do that is looking to Jesus, right? So in the next section, we'll look at that, looking to Jesus. But there's this beautiful parallel between the next section that we're about to look at and the time when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. You can compare the actions of Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, right before he dies on the cross, and you can line that up. Scholars that know the Greek and know the language a lot better than me do that. They can kind of put it on a chart and be like, okay, here's the passage where Jesus washed his disciples' feet. He knew who he was. He knew he was loved by the Father. He knew he was returning to the Father's love. So he stripped off his nice clothes. He put on his work clothes. He got down on his knees, and he washed his disciples' feet. And then he said to his disciples, I want you to go do the same thing. And again, sometimes churches do this as symbolism, right? Foot washing can be a beautiful symbol. Some churches have incorporated that into their regular routine of sacraments and symbols. Um, I've done a lot of weddings where a couple will wash each other's feet. I just want to be clear. Symbolism is beautiful. Use symbols. Symbols can encourage us, can remind us of what we're walking towards. And that can be a good and beautiful thing. Just make sure you don't stop at the symbol, okay? Like the reason that married couples do these symbols is to remind each other, oh, we got to do this in the daily grind of life when there's not 200 people watching us and pretty music playing, right? Like we, we don't just do it in our nice outfits. We do it when all the kids are sick and throwing up and we just lost our job and everything's terrible, right? Sorry, I shouldn't have said that word. We, we love each other in the hard times, In the good times, we serve each other. Paul's saying we, as the body of Christ, should serve each other in love. The good days and the bad days. Jesus washed his disciples' feet to give us an example to know how to live out this next section that we're about to read of Jesus giving himself up for us. He gave us an example. That example was eminently humble and practical and compassionate, right? Foot washing does not make as much sense in a practical sense in our society because we all have indoor plumbing, 
and we all wear closed-toed shoes for the most part, you know. Summertime, I'll start wearing sandals again, then maybe I'll let you wash my feet. But typically, we don't need it, right? We have sidewalks, we have grass, we don't have the dirt roads, we don't have the sewage out in the street. You know, it's a cleaner society. So here's the idea. Look at that pattern and say, how can I humbly and practically serve the needs of the people around me? That's the beauty of what foot washing shows us. In ancient society, that was the job of the lowliest of the low, and Jesus who they knew was God, took on that job and said, just do whatever needs to be done, man. Just serve each other in love. Look to the interests of others, not just your own interests. I grabbed a picture here of a statue at Dallas Theological Seminary. So Dallas Theological Seminary is a a great place of learning in Dallas where people can go and train for ministry and you can learn the Greek and the Hebrew and you can learn theology and you can study all kinds of important things. And they wanted the students there to know that learning is great, But in the end, we're looking to the example of Jesus. Ultimately, as we serve one another in love, we're going to be called on to humble ourselves in ways that we never expected. And that's what Paul is asking us to do as the body of Christ, to do what needs to be done. Practical. Like I said, foot washing may not be necessary in our society. Our our friends are going to need something else probably, right? A month ago, your friends, your neighbors maybe needed water or a heater, right? Some of you went and lived with your neighbors or maybe had your neighbors come and live with you, right? There are practical needs we have at different times. We serve each other based on the practical needs. Peter argued with Jesus about it when, they were, when Jesus was washing their feet. Peter was like, no, 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 I can't let you do this. And Jesus was like, dude, if you don't let me do this, I have no part in you. He's like, okay, well then wash all of me. Jesus is like, come on, man, I don't need to wash all of you, right? Like you just need a foot washing. We keep it to what's actually necessary, again. Symbolism can be beautiful and good. We want to participate in symbols, but make sure we don't forget to actually serve each other in the ways that people actually need to be served. Ask yourself, what are my neighbor's needs? What are my friend's needs? How can I help them out? How can I pitch in and serve in practical ways? As we do this, then we have a single-minded expression, not of conceit or rivalry, but of real Christian unity. We live in a very divided age, And practically serving each other is one of the ways that we can point the world to real Christian unity. Say, this is what Jesus is like. He actually served us. Romans 12.1 is another great cross-reference for that. We look back on Christ's sacrifice for us because he sacrificed for us. It says, then offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Then serve others, serve Jesus in love. Okay, the next section, we are to fixate on Jesus. Fixate on Jesus. We see this in verses 5 through 8. 5 through 8, as I said before, this is then the pivot point of the entire book of Philippians, and it's a parallel to the foot washing of John chapter 13, but it goes even farther because it brings in what happened later in the story, Jesus dying on the cross for us. So verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Again, with the same mind, the single-mindedness. Have the same mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is not something, again, that you stir up on your own by your own strength. He's not saying, have the mind like Christ, and if you can work up enough Christ-like mindedness in your life, then maybe Jesus will love you. No, he's saying it's yours in Christ Jesus. It's a gift that he already gave you in the gospel. Trust him, now follow him. Have the same mind that's already yours in Christ Jesus. Verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself 
nothing. Some translations say emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he had perfect equality with God. Jesus is God. He emptied himself by coming into our world, by taking on our pain and our difficult, by being uh, by living as a human being. Now, important word I have to define here, the word form kept appearing. Did you all hear that? The echo of form, it's, it comes up like three or four times in this section. Form, I think in modern English, we tend to think of as like external only. In ancient Greek, it was an external shape based on an internal nature in essence. That's what the word meant in ancient Greek. It's kind of come in our modern English usage, to kind of mean more of a fluffy external sort of word. Does that make sense? Sometimes words drift over time. So if he wanted to just say just the externals, there was a Greek word for that. It's schema. He used this word, which was the shape of something based on its internal nature in essence, right? So here's why that's important. He is God. He doesn't just look like God. He is God. What else? He took on the form of a human being. He became a human. Not just the shape of a human. It wasn't just a trick. It wasn't like a hologram walking around. He became a human. He lived as one of us. The way the ancient creeds summarize this is that God, uh, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He is both. The way we state the Trinity is that God is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So in the incarnation, when Jesus took on flesh, right, like, Chili con carne, incarnation. He, take, he takes on a body, right? That's what the word means. Come on. <laughs> I'm trying to help you remember what it means here. So he takes on flesh. He takes on meat. He becomes a human being. And he lives in the same parameters as us, right? He doesn't stop being God. He starts living as a human, right? Which is amazing when you think about it. That's why Hebrews 4.15 can say, we have this high priest that's not unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. Jesus has been weak. He's lived as you and I have, just without sin. And we're like, wait, how, how can that be? That doesn't make sense to us because our knowledge of humanity is so intertwined with our sinfulness. It's like we can't even make sense of a human that wasn't sinful. It's like we can't even make sense of a human that just really trusted God the Father all the time perfectly. But he was betrayed like we were. He had to wait in line like we do. He had to to get hurt by friends the way we do. He physically felt pain and hunger the way that we do. He he went through the things that we go through. He was tempted in every way, we're told in Hebrews 4.15, yet without sin. So he's 100% God and 100% man. The point of this emptying, it's that kano word again. Remember, kenodoxia was empty glory. Here, he's got glory, and then he empties himself. It's called sometimes the kenosis passage is how smarty pants theologians like to talk about this. It's the emptying passage, made himself nothing. What does that mean? It doesn't mean he stopped being God. It means he really lived as a human. He really, really lived as a human. Not just an ordinary human, but a human who died for you and who died for me, who was willing to be obedient to the point of death. He became a servant he became a sacrifice. So he fulfilled every Old Testament sacrificial picture, every ceremonial law 
he showed us that the purity of God is now fulfilled because a perfect sacrifice has been made for our sin. So that if you look at Christ, you're seeing that Jesus took your sin upon himself and he gives you his perfect righteousness. He rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death. And so this is the pivot point of Philippians because Paul is saying, every command I've called you to, every single-mindedness, every obedience, every call to bear with one another and to partner in the gospel and to love each other, it's all based on the power of what Jesus has done for you. So again, he's not saying like every other religion, go clean yourself up and then maybe God will bless you. He's saying God has already blessed you in Christ. He's given you everything. Look, he became obedient to the point of death. He died on the cross for you. If you doubt whether or not God loves you, you're in good company because basically every major Bible character wrestles with God and often doubts his goodness. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints were told to look back at the Exodus and say, does God love you? Remember his mighty acts? He saved you from Egypt. Now we have something even bigger, even fuller. We wonder, God, do you really love me? Have you really abandoned me? We look back to the cross and we say, he saved me from my own sin, from my suicidal obsession with selfishness. He saved me from that. He died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the grave. He's conquered sin and death. So I can see, again, I'm fixated on Jesus. He's done it. I see the face of God. I see his love. I am rebuilt in my confidence for him and about him. The way that we live this out, I think, one of the most important ways to do this is to just build regular rhythms of worship of Jesus. This main point is that we would fixate on Jesus, that we would obsess with Jesus. I want to really encourage you towards an ancient practice of just scripture reading and prayer and make that a regular rhythm in your life. I grabbed a picture here of someone praying over their Bible Read your Bible, read a chapter, read half a chapter. I don't know where you are in your understanding of Scripture. Um, I know part of what drove me to become a Bible teacher was just wanting to understand the Bible better, right? So I understand, I remember what it's like to read parts of the Bible and go, I don't know what in the world this is talking about, right? So I, I know everybody's at kind of different levels of like, I read some of it and I get it, I read some of it, I don't get it. Or some of you are like, I don't get any of it, right? <laughs> Read a small portion, focus on texts that you're already beginning to understand. Read those more, then kind of branch out from there. But read some scripture, make it a daily habit. Read some scripture and then talk to Jesus about it. Say, Jesus, I think you're telling me to take this next step. Will you help me? Because I'm not sure if I can do it. Bring another friend into that process. Will you pray for me? Because I'm struggling with this. I think Jesus is wanting me to be pure in this new way and I've never tried this before and it's scary. He'll help you. Read the scripture and pray as you learn to apply it. In new ways. We sometimes call this a quiet time. It's just setting aside time in the morning or at night or, or both to say, I'm going to read some scripture and I'm going to pray and talk to Jesus about what I'm learning. I'm going to tell him the things I don't understand. I'm going to cry to him when I'm having a bad day. I'm going to ask him for help with next steps of obedience. Make this a daily rhythm in your life. It doesn't have to look like anything fancy. It's just a consistent rhythm. You forget a couple of days, you go back to it again. You just, you read the scripture, you pray through the scripture, and you fixate on Jesus. Jesus is the point of the Bible. Jesus is the voice speaking through the 66 different books of the Bible. Fixate on him. A couple of books that I would recommend that might help you to better understand Jesus as he's revealed in the Gospels. Uh, If you're new, I really encourage you, number one, read the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Start reading through who Jesus is and what he's done. 
There's a couple of books that are helpful. One I've recommended a lot called Love Walked Among Us, and it's by Paul Miller. And this is just a study of the Gospels, and it just shows us the character of Jesus, how he showed compassion to people, how he loved people, how he listened to people, uh, how he challenged people, how he looked at people and paid attention to them. It's it's a beautiful study that just kind of takes us through the Gospels, helps you understand who Jesus is. That could be a good help to help you begin reading the Scripture on your own. And then another one that I've just started reading, I quoted it last week. It's a new book that just came out maybe a few months ago. It's called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. It's really fantastic. And, and what it does is it keeps pressing us to keep coming back to Jesus. Because as you start to walk with Jesus, you're going to stumble and do stupid things, right? When you first start following Jesus, you're like, Jesus, I will follow you anywhere and I will do anything you say. And then you find yourself doing something that you regret, and you think, okay, I can't go back to him until I clean myself up. No, you, you run to Jesus with your skinned knees and your stumbling and your shame and your addiction. You keep running back to Jesus. Gentle and lowly says this is the primary way that God has revealed himself to us is the God that says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and you will find rest in me. Yes, God is just and he will come back and judge all sin and wickedness. We don't belittle that truth of who God is and that his intention with his mercy. The way that God can be both just and merciful is Jesus on the cross. And so what Ortland is showing to us in this book, Gentle and Lowly, is, yeah, he's just, and yeah, he's merciful, but the primary way that we deal with God, because we're not just, is through his mercy, right? That's the face of God by which we, we see him, is through Jesus, gentle and lowly. Come to him. Don't run away from him. Run to him. When you're hungry, run to him. When you're thirsty, run to him. When you feel like a failure, run to him. When you're covered in shame, run to him. Fixate on Jesus. Don't ever stop running to Jesus. So this great, beautiful portrait in verses 5 through 11 ends with this climax in verses 9 through 11. It says, therefore, because of the perfect obedience of Jesus, Jesus obeyed for you. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His perfect obedience earned him. We don't earn by our perfect obedience glory. Jesus earned glory through his perfect obedience. He's exalted. This is an echo of the prophet Isaiah using the exact same language about Yahweh being the one to whom everyone will bow. So again, this is connecting him back to the Old Testament. Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that he is Lord. Jack Miller used to say, the way up is the way down. We see that in the life of Jesus. And that's going to bring us to the next section. Our final section is obey dramatically. We'll be reminded of Jesus' obedience to the point of death in verse 8. And then we'll look at this little section at the end in verses 12 through 13 where Paul says, Obey. It's going to be hard. It's going to be scary. But obey me. You've been united in service because of the affection that Jesus showed you. You fixate on Jesus and see who he is and what he's done for you. Now obey. Work that out with fear and trembling. And he's coming right off this exaltation of Jesus. And so there's kind of... There's a connection point here. Paul's kind of nudging us like, if it worked out well for Jesus, it's probably going to work out well for us, right? Like if he suffered the worst injustices 
And he obeyed in the most brutal way, far beyond anything that our obedience would ever cost. And he was exalted to the highest place. We're probably going to be okay. Now, to be clear, you and I are not going to be exalted to the highest place and worshiped like Jesus. But we're his little brothers and sisters. We're going to be with them. And the way this is worked out in the book of Revelation is it says to the martyrs, those of you who died for your faith, who obeyed dramatically in the most costly way, you will be rewarded. It's going to be okay. You will overcome. Obey dramatically. More and more, our society is shifting towards this place where we can't just obey God accidentally anymore. Does that make sense? Right. Less and less do we have a society that's structured that says, hey, we want everybody to obey the laws of God in the Bible, right? There were times when that was there. It was never perfect. Just to be clear, I don't think there were good old days when everybody was holy, right? But there is a real shift happening where there's kind of an anti-God's law emphasis that's starting to take over. Should we be afraid of that? No, I'm not saying I'm excited about it, right? I've been clear about that. We, we don't want bad things to happen, but we can be confident that as we learn more and more to trust Jesus and obey him because he tells us to, instead of just obeying because it might help our business grow or help us get along in society, no, we're obeying because Jesus commands us to in dramatic and costly ways. Revelation says it's going to work out. Here in Philippians, he says it's going to work out. He says in verse 8, he obeyed to the point of death. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we look at Christ and we're like, okay, it's okay for me to obey and then people be mad at me and make fun of me for being a Christian if Jesus could die here on the cross for my sins, right? Like we could handle a little loss of profit, a little public shaming if Jesus was willing to die for us. That's, that's where this is going. So then skip down to verse 12. Verse 12, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's saying, you've always obeyed, thank you. I want to say that too. I don't know all of you. A lot of you are new. A lot of you are visiting. A lot of you I haven't gotten to know yet. But the vast majority of you that I know, I see you taking steps to obey Jesus. You're getting up and you're following him. You fall, I fall, we all fall, but, but you get up and you're obeying him. Thank you. Just as Paul is saying to the Philippians, you've always obeyed. Thank you, but, but keep going. It's going to get hotter. It's going to get more difficult. I don't just mean Texas summer. I just mean, like, culturally, it's going to get more difficult. It's going to get hotter and, and more painful. Keep obeying. Paul says, not only my presence, but also my absence. And then he describes it this way. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out with fear and trembling. So again, this goes back to don't work to get salvation. Receive salvation from Jesus and then work that out. As you obey him in difficult situations, as you say, Jesus, this is going to be hard, but I know this is what you're telling me to do, so I'm going to do what you've told me to do. People are going to see that hope in Jesus coming out of your heart, right? The way James says it is, you can say you love Jesus. You can say you trust Jesus. I'm going to show you by what I actually do. I'm going to show you by my works. So that, again, doesn't mean you work for your salvation. It means you work out the salvation that Jesus has already given you. And he's saying, do this with fear and trembling. This is scary. It's, it's not easy. It's hard to obey Jesus. There, there are a lot of situations where our training, our culture, 
our addiction, our evil desires are pulling us in a very different direction, and there's a part of us that feels like it's going to kill us if we obey Jesus. Often it won't. Sometimes, maybe. But usually it won't. Usually it's just that living sacrifice, that, that letting maybe that little unhealthy part of us die as we learn to trust him more and more. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, there are probably specific ways that Jesus is telling you to obey him right now. And I don't know what those are, right? Because at one level, I want to bind you to everything that this book says. Like, do what the book says, okay? That's my covering over everybody. If you're not sure, go back to point two, read the book, and then do what Jesus tells you to do. But more specifically than that, there are, there are next steps that Jesus is calling you to, right? Like I know there are things that are probably keeping you up at night or waking you up early in the morning or things that are bothering you in a relationship or in the way that you're handling your finances or in the way that you're interacting with people at work. And you're like, you know what, Jesus, Jesus wants me to do this differently. He's calling me to make some hard choices. So just if, if you're struggling with that, Obey that voice of Jesus calling you to obey what you already know to do. Take that next step. And yes, it'll be scary. And yes, you will fall. But he loves you. He's with you. He's going to help you. And this is what Paul says in verse 13. Close it up here. He says it this way. Part of the fear and trembling is this. It is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. When you obey Jesus, it's not just you pulling yourselves up by your bootstraps and doing the hard thing. It is hard, but it's actually God working in you. That's you working out that salvation. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, has written his law in your heart, and you're, you're now living that out in real life, in real time. And that's God at work in you. So part of that fear and trembling is, is this awareness of like, the holy God of the universe that has made all things has invaded your little life and my little life. Our puny little human lives, like the God of the universe is at work in our little lives. Our lives matter. We make an impact. Our little obedience makes a difference. There's this uh, great art movie. Be hard. It's hard to like make it all the way through the movie, but it had a fantastic message. And it's called A Hidden Life. And it was about a, a German guy that couldn't, obey the Nazis because of his conscience. His, his conscience was bound to God, and so he couldn't obey the Nazis, and he had to obey God. And people kept telling him again and again, it's not going to matter. It's not going to matter. No one will see. You're going to die a hidden life that nobody knows about. And he's like, I've got to obey Jesus. I've, I've got to believe that it matters, and it's worth it. The beautiful thing about the movie is, in the story, he doesn't know that anybody ever knows about his obedience but now there's a whole movie that, you know, thousands and millions of people are seeing about his obedience. You never know when your obedience is going to impact other people. But either way, we have a single-minded devotion to Jesus. We're following Jesus, and we trust him to work it out. We trust him to do something with that. And sometimes we'll only see what he's done when we're with him face-to-face in heaven. But we trust that it's worth it. One of my favorite understandings of of obedience is teaching a kid to ride a bike. Um, when a kid's riding a bike, it's scary. They fall down. They're doing stuff. They're working their little legs. They're learning to move those pedals. But typically, 
dad or mom or uncle or aunt are with them, guiding them, helping them. Uh, in this picture, they're riding on bricks. My first two kids, we lived in an 80-year-old house in an old neighborhood, sidewalks that went like this. They were broken and there were bricks on the streets. It was crazy, right? I had to hold on to them a lot more. Our third child was when we moved here to plant the church, got a house in Harker Heights with paved streets and a cul-de-sac. It was way easier. But you know what? With all three kids, I was there with them. I held them until I thought they were secure. And I let them go and I let them do it for themselves a little bit. And sometimes they'd fall and I'd pick them back up. I didn't abandon them. I helped them. Now, obviously, this is not perfect. The mysteries of how God works through us is, is way more complex than that. But what I want you to see is this picture of a loving God who is with you. He loves you. If you had parents that were a jerk when you learned to ride a bike, push the illustration out of your mind. Don't think about it. You have a father that loves you. You have a heavenly father that's perfect. As a matter of fact, every bad relationship you've ever had, you know it's bad because it stands in stark contrast to the perfect love of your heavenly father who will never leave you or forsake you. Trust him and start pedaling. What's the next step? What are the things that he's calling you to do? How is he calling you to be obedient? It might be in the area of, of your finances. It might be in the areas of relationships. It might be in the area of how you use your words, issues of honesty or dishonesty, issues of sexual purity, which are becoming harder and harder in our culture, being seen more and more as bizarre to maintain a biblical sexual ethic. What does it mean for you to walk in faithfulness and obey what Jesus has told you to do? Take those next steps and trust that he's working through you in your obedience. Obedience is based on his plan in Christ. Jesus defeated sin and death for you. We saw that in verses 5 through 11. It's based on what Jesus did for you, but it's also you stepping out in faith and trying hard things. Take, take those next steps. Do the next thing he's called you to, trusting that he's making the way and he's with you all the way. Single-minded devotion to Jesus. As you single-mindedly pursue Jesus, recognize as this section began, it's based on the comfort, the consolation, the love, the participation that Jesus already has in your life. Jesus loved you first. While we were yet, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Single-minded devotion to Jesus is based on his single-minded devotion to you. So we'll end with this last phrase from verse 13. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It pleases the God of the universe to save you, adopt you, and work through you. So single-mindedly fixate on him, who he is, and what he's done for you. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and that you've come after us in Jesus. Lord, as we doubt, help us to look back to what you've done for us in the cross. As we wonder about your love, help us to look back to you and how you've saved us and sacrificed for us. We thank you, we praise you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.